You're listening to a Scottish Poetry Library podcast. Brave. Because in uh, camera will always be a clock to want. Because this tongue I gather where will never be the real Mackay, I sing. Because for all that we're all Jock Tamsons, etc., are we though? Eh, are we? Because of mountains, castles, tenements, and backlands. Because of whiskey exports, because of airports, because of islands, I sing. Because of pubs at Eminence, we look a smoking ban, I sing. Because it's grand to sit with a lexicon and a discet mind, I sing. Because of the pish and the stare, I sing. Because of you. I sing with Scotland wit. Wouldn't the kind of working class authenticity gonna come real enough an hour rigged in six pints of tenants and glassed it in the cunt? But it wouldn't, by the way, a single Google Scotland, a laptop Scotland, or a Scotland say doff on bit tonner HBO drama series and DLC packs for post apocalyptic RPGs that it wouldn't ken its gawk for its gadget to cause lips and fingers, amaze balls, calms mere freely as bangin'. A single Scotland that hinks the preservation of anything doing Scots literature is of particular value and importance, but couldn't write it with a reproduction claim or ship on its crate. What Hanks say, Walter Scott, scrive it, and in either tide. What Hanks say, Alvin Welsh, scrive it, and in either tide. A single of Scotland with wants independence for Tories and patronising geeks and chips on shoulders, but sprattles to assert any kind of cultural autonomy that isn't grounded in honey traps. A single of Scotland with Hanks, there's likely some sort of god, right? Well, I'd like to go out for sushi one night, but couldn't handle chopsticks. Which signs up for internet dating profiles and never replies to the messages with dreams of Biden and London. A sign with a Scotland that fires tourists wearing see you Jimmy hearts the pure death stare. And made a point of learning all the verses to old Lang Syne and owns a hail sign collection of Bell and Sebastian E.P.'s. A sign with a Scotland Biden in the real dream to one day find out just to parochial all its cultural ref references may be, a only cool with the intertextuality of the Scottish Renaissance were wapping, annotated editions, and means it's the same with obdy else. A single Scotland has negated sky, or scrabster, or score, but can do an absolute diamond or rant on the plurality of Scots identity for Alexander, MacAlexander, a wee ek. A single Scotland that couldn't hang a grander in the night than we have poker chips and curry sauce. What chucks the date of Bannockburn on Wikipedia? What's nice to sure about proportional representation? What draws chats on the backs of earmats to learn you about rifts and glaciation? And when it does, it feels this oery dunk, this undeserved warmth of inexplicable love. What is heaved up? In the blanks before anxiety is heaved up by the lithe curve of a firth, which wants you to catch the drift, which starting to lose the point. I sing with Scotland, but I'll chant its hurt out downstairs of the Royal Oak, which will pook its timber, clarsach hurt strings, which, like glamour, will sing its hurt into existence. What harps sang rune its bloody neve heard, 
Let's sing. Good day and welcome to the Scottish Poetry Library's latest podcast. My name is Colin Waters and I shall be your host for the next 30 minutes. Now the poem that you heard at the top of the show is called Brave and it's by the young Scottish poet Harry Giles. Harry's been mentioned in poetry circles of late as he is not only currently shortlisted for the Edwin Morgan Poetry Award, the largest poetry um, prize in the UK I read, he's also on the shortlist of the Forward Prize's Best First Collection this year. Which all begs the question, who is Harry Giles? Harry is from Orkney and now lives in Edinburgh, I believe, where he co-founded the Spoken Word event series, Inky Fingers, and he co-directs the live art platform, Anatomy. 2015 saw the publication of the narrative verse sequence drawn uh, by Harry in our Real Red Selves, that was the name of the collection, and it was published by Vagabond Voices. And as well as appearing as part of that book, he also had a, his first full-length collection, Tonguet, which was published by Freight Books. Tonguet was also shortlisted for the inaugural Edwin Morgan Poetry Award, so he's becoming quite the regular on that particular shortlist. His poem, Waffle House Crush, was featured in our online anthology, Best Scottish Poems 2015. And if you're a regular listener to the podcast series, you would have heard him read that poem on our podcast, which was dedicated to BSP 2015, which came out earlier this year and is still on our website if you want to listen to it. With regards to this podcast, well, it was recorded in April when Harry came to the Scottish Poetry Library and over the course of about 30 minutes we chatted about the influence of Edwin Morgan, Harry's interest in a messy, divergent, confusing take on the Scots language and why the Daily Mail called him vile. Brave is the first poem in your first full-length collection, Tonga. And as first poems and first collections um, often strike me as being, it sounds a bit like a, a manifesto, or at least you're marking out some territory you'd like to explore. How would you describe Brave? Yeah, I think that's fairly accurate. Um, the, the book is about um, voice and language and Scotland and play. And, you know, a lot of that is contained... Um, contained within that first poem. Um, I mean, it's also an attempt to just try and sort of, um, I suppose, smack the reader in the face with something uh, confrontational, I suppose, in a way, and fun, um, because I think that's a good way of, of kind of introdu- introducing the, the style of the collection, which, which attempts to be those two things, like fun and confrontational. Um, and it's also a way of... Um, just kind of bluntly uh, asserting this um, mongrel uh, language at the beginning of the collection because the collection continually moves between voices and registers and languages and, and that's the sort of thing that it is so so it kind of gets that out there right at the beginning. Yeah because there's a note at the back of the book that describes the Scots you use as being as you say mongrel and, and magpie how did you develop it? Is it in the same sort of lineage as McDermott's synthetic Scots? What's the story here? Oh, well, that's a huge and yes. sort of controversial <laughs> subject. Uh, and also, like, my approach to it has changed over the course of this collection, over the course of my work. Um, I am, I suppose I'm with McDermott in that um, the Scots that I use, and it's about sort of a third of the collection, I suppose, that's in Scots, and there's English translations of it as well. Um, the Scots that I use is, is not attempting uh, vernacular authenticity. Um, it's not 
it's not how people speak because I don't believe that most people write how they speak. I don't believe that most English poetry is written how people speak English. So I don't see why I should have to do that with Scots. Um, and also because um, I have, I suppose, I have my own struggles with uh, authenticity and performance. Um, I don't necessarily feel that. Uh, I, uh, a specific, definite, fixed, rooted authenticity that I can say is mine. My background is muddled. My accent is mixed. My my the way that I live is 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 mongrel and magpie. So I think my language should be as well. Um, but all that said, um, I suppose where I I differ, where I differ from that synthetic Scots tradition, which I think is a little bit misunderstood, is. Uh, that I'm also uh, interested in drawing in influences from outside Scotland and from outside um, a, a sort of central Scottishness um, and from, from indicating uh, diversity, plurality, difference within that language. So, so this uses bits of contemporary uh, Americanized speak. It uses bits of internet speak. There's bit that, that sometimes I choose the more Englishy version of a word. Sometimes I choose the more American version of a word um, because that is reflective of the kind of way that I think about the world, I suppose. And because I'm not interested in a, a coherent, definite national project of Scotland, I'm interested in a, a messy, um, diverse and confusing project of, of, of this society. I, th I think I read a thing that was really interesting about how your influences come together and somebody like Edwin Morgan as a sort of role model for what you're trying to achieve. But rather than me paraphrase it, why don't, why don't you tell me again what, you, what, what role that sort of Edwin Morgan uh, uh, represents for you as, as a writer? I mean, he's, he's my favourite, I suppose, of, of, of Scottish poets. And I think my favourite thing about him, and rather than any specific... Mm, aesthetic or any specific argument, it's the fact that Edwin Morgan combined being populist and being experimental, um, sometimes in the same work. Um, so he, you know, he would write these um, almost doggerelish poems for special events sometimes, like he would write this sort of friendly, accessible rhyming couplet verse, he would write really complex and intellectual work that still engaged with popular themes. Um, he, he did playful and silly and interesting things um, with the concrete poetry movement when that was you know, still in its experimental phase. Um, he experimented with science fiction in poetry, experimented with Scots in poetry, and he was always interested in how work that is popular and populist and really focused on a broad audience can also continually um, push the boundaries of, of what's possible in poetry and what's possible in language. And I think those two things should to go together, and I suppose that's the strongest inspiration for me. Quite often claims are made on behalf of dead poets uh, or dead writers about what they wouldn't or wouldn't be interested in in, in the contemporary period. But uh, I don't, maybe just because he died so recently, mm. but I really do think that he'd be very interested in something like remix culture, which your collection touches upon. And so maybe we could mention, you know, your take on, on remix culture as it's, as it's um, presented or, or worked upon or played with in, mm. in your collection. Mm. So, for example, um, one of the more intriguing uh, pieces is a, a supercut of the deaths that you get in Game of Thrones 
or you have a slash poem about your near hominem Harry Styles of One Direction fame. You've got the, the descriptively titled poem in which nouns, verbs and adjectives have been replaced by entries from the Wikipedia page List of Fantasy Worlds. So how do you approach popular culture? Is it, is it fuel for your engine? What is it? Yeah, um, I mean, it's we live in a culture completely saturated by language, right, by ideas. We are the most, this period is the period where people are reading and writing the most words of any period in history. We see so many words in so many different languages and registers every day. Um, and that's, that's the sea that I'm swimming in. And so I think, I, yeah, my poetry can't help but, but respond to that. Um, and and I, yeah, this idea of, of sampling the language that exists out in the world, it's, it's, it's not totally new. I mean, as you say, it is something that Edwin Morgan did. It's something you can find in, in medieval poetry. It's something you can find in Latin poetry, right? Latin poetry invented the, the centel, the poem made up of lines of other people's poems, or people created biblical narratives, like bits of Virgil. And so remix, you know, in some form has been around for a long time. And Edwin Morgan did it too. He has poems that remix John Cage. Yes. But it is, uh, I, th- I, th- I suppose it's more prominent in more poets writing now because of this, this saturation um, of language. And for me, I suppose the reason I most often engage with it um, is when I, there, there's, some, there's some use of language in the world that is bothering me, enraging me, upsetting me, and taking that language and twisting it and occupying it and playing with it and undermining it has a, a kind of reparative healing function for me personally, like it's a way of coping and it has a, a protest function out into the world. It's a way of saying, this is, this is not right. Um, and so that that's often why I'm I'm remixing. You know, I remix a lot of um, political speeches and advertising texts and other forms of language that I find horrifying because it it helps. <laughs> yeah, cause I wanted to, to say it wasn't just um, you're some sort of person in your sort of um, relaxation pod um, <laughs> uh, drinking in all these sort of like records or or. 20 episode um, American series that go on for years, there is a political edge to it as well. So for example, um, you're not just remixing Harry Styles or, or Wikipedia pages, it's the poem Your Strengths, which samples and changes questions that you find in the Department for Work and Pensions, Work Capability Assessment, the Life in the UK Citizenship Test, and the DWP's Your Strengths Psychometric Test. Yeah. I mean, number one, how do you come across these things? And then number two, what makes you go, I see a poem in this? Each of those tests kind of came up in the life of somebody that I cared about and cropped up in, in my life. Um, and I, I, I suppose I got interested in, in the disciplinary function of the questionnaire, in how, in how answers to specific questions shape your, your access to a country, your access to economic resources, your access to a livable life and sometimes these questions take very sort of innocuous and friendly and supportive forms but they're actually um, a means of, of, of laying down really hard legal and, econo- and economic restrictions on 
people. Um, so so all those questionnaires were, were cropping up in my life, and I was upset about them, so I needed to, yeah, to, needed to make them into a poem. And if you can't navigate that language, then you're in real trouble yeah. as well. Why don't we hear um, one of these uh, Lumix culture poems then, Harry? I'll do one that I don't think has been recorded before, which is Sermon. Um, and, uh, well, I'll tell you what it remixes afterwards, maybe, if that's all right. So this could be a nice game. What do you think <laughs> this originally came from, folks? Harry, you have the floor. Sermon. Today, I want to focus my remarks on love. Though the subject is complex, my message on love is stark. We won't defeat love simply by the actions we take outside our borders. We have to get to the root of the problem. We need to be clear on where the origins of love lie. And we should be clear what we mean by this term. It is a political ideology supported by minorities. There are those who use love to promote their goal. This is wrong. We should cut ourselves off from love. We have allowed the weakening of our collective identity. All this leaves some lovers feeling rootless. We see a process of radicalization, internet chat rooms where attitudes are shared and validated. In our communities, groups led by young, dynamic lovers define themselves solely in terms of their love. These interactions are a substitute for what wider society has failed to supply. We must make it impossible for lovers to succeed. We need to argue that love is wrong. To belong here is to believe in these things. None of this will be easy. And it won't happen if we act alone. This ideology crosses continents. We are all in this together. At stake is our way of life. I know where that poem comes from because <laughs> I've read the notes at the back of the book. But um, maybe it wouldn't surprise people to learn that the person who was speaking it originally, also in some altered form, is... Uh, David Cameron yeah. at the Munich uh, Security Conference in 2011, I think? At the Munich Security Conference. Um, in a speech that was originally about um, terrorism. So I, I, I just um, switched the word terrorism for the word love and then edited the speech um, for, for meter and, and, and arc and things like that. So I cut it down, uh, but the only thing that I changed other than, other than cutting was to change the word um, terrorism to the word love. Last summer, wasn't it? Vagabond Poets, Stroke Vagabond Voices, published... A book triptych number one, A Real Red Cells, which featured a suite of poems by yourself. Uh, the drone poems, are we calling it? I should say, in, in spirit of full disclosure, I was <laughs> the editor on this book, but that doesn't change the fact that it's fab and you should buy it. Yeah. And read it. Um, so, the drone character uh, that's at the centre of the sequence of poems, um, it, is, it is a woman, isn't it? Sort of? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there's a poem that refers to her having a cock. But <laughs> yeah, she does. Um, and she's also a machine, um, so she's, uh, she's, she's a complex um, biological and technical body and she's many different things um, at once. Um, and there's many aspects of her that are me and there are many aspects of her that, that aren't, not least the, having 
uh, wings and, and actually flying bombing missions, which I've, I've never done, though I am complicit. Um, yeah, so she's, she's many things at once. It's yeah. a wonderful world of imagination. I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic character. As I um, no doubt bored you at the time of publication leading up to it, I think it's a better character than you'll come across <laughs> in most Booker-nominated um, novels, to be honest with you. But enough of my, um, what would you say, praising. Let's yeah. get down to the hard tacks here. Yeah. I remember when we were doing the sort of... Um, readings to publicise the book, my perennial question to you was, oh, drones are having a bit of a moment at writing, aren't they, Harry? Can you talk about that? But now a year on, I feel almost like drones are becoming like, I don't know, social media or mobile phones, things that people were interested in and wrote about and they had they had their moment, but now it's actually just becoming part of the landscape. And I think that's more disturbing than when we were talking about, isn't it funny, these drone things? Yeah, I mean, I was, I, I was desperate to get the book done and out because I knew that that was happening and I was I was deli- I mean this was deliberately written at that turning point and through that turning point in which drones were emerging into the popular sphere and I wanted to get it out in that turning moment where we were just starting at that point where they were new enough um, that we understood them um, and had interesting things to say about them and not so familiar now that we have forgotten what they mean and now the word has, has saturated, the word drone has saturated popular culture um, to the point where its meanings are um, assumed and less contested and less confusing. So I was trying to kind of contest that meaning of drone and unpack that meaning of drone and, and complicate it and really, and dig into it as hard as possible. But I, you know, I... Um, I, I both celebrate and despise the fact that we live in drone culture. I think this will be the, the drone century, that this, this is the century of um, automated weaponry, remote warfare and constant surveillance. Those will be the defining technologies of this century um, and they are part of our lives so we have to write about them. And, and I guess it's symbolic of the continuing atomization of society. There used to be a thing whereby, you know, someone who was stuck indoors all day would say, uh, I've only seen the postman uh, this week and now you're not even going to get to see the postman. <laughs> Your package is going to be delivered by a drone, you know, from, from Amazon. Um, why don't we have a drone poem to give sure. people flavour? Yeah, yeah. The drone watches a US presidential debate from a travelodge off the M18 near Doncaster. One of these men will have his finger on her button. She dips a sensor into a bag of Doritos and closes her shocking eyes, massaging the remote, mute on, mute off, mute on. This man is lying. This man hasn't read a novel for four years, she can relate. This man's face is made from fluorosilicon rubber, slick under studio lighting. She guesses he needs an oil change, she can relate. This man wears a He-Man t-shirt in bed. He carries a Thundercats lunchbox. He makes his own sandwiches. He does not choose his own tie. This man cannot look at a gun without weeping. This man is a prayer. This man's teeth are crawling with nanobots. They shine like a row of white crosses, like fallout. 
The drone folds and unfolds her absentee ballot. Going back to Tonga, mm-hmm. there's another sequence of poems which originates in a, a pamphlet he did a, a couple of years back, I think. Uh, Ohm, as we mm-hmm. call it. And those were poems about the Govan Hill Baths. What was the story behind that, Harry? Sure, I was uh, the, the writer in residence at Govan Hill Baths for um, five or six months, I think, uh, back in 2013, 2012, 2013. Um, which was a, it was a wonderful place to be. Um, so I was there uh, a couple of days a week, um, both writing the pamphlet, the little book, um, and doing some kind of community-centred arts activities, um, working kind of as a writer and as a poet. Um, sometimes those were things like poetry workshops, um, and sometimes those were things like um, I ran a, a poetry takeaway at some Govan Hill Baths events where people could uh, could order a poem from me and I would write them a poem. So it was, yeah, it was, it was a community arts project. Um, and Govan Hill Baths, for those that don't know, it's... Uh, it's a, a, a semi-derelict, but increasingly less derelict, um, swimming baths complex in Govan Hill in Glasgow. Um, it was closed by Glasgow City Council, um, but occupied by a really incredible um, community-led occupation um, that, that, that claimed that building for a number of months. Um, they were eventually forced out, but, but after some really continued strong campaigning, um, they were given access as a community trust back to the building. Um, and so they began opening up parts of the building as a community arts and social centre, um, occasionally filling pools for particular events. Um, and just in the last year, they've been given some, uh, some really good um, grant money to properly start convert- converting it back into a swimming pool complex again. So having been closed by a council and uh, attempted to be sold off by a council, it's been taken by community hands, run as an arts and social centre, and, uh, and a once and future swimming pool. It's a really important space for the local area and a fantastic group of people to be with. So that was a, a sequence of poems, Ohm, that was written for them, and all the sales of the pamphlets go to the baths, um, and the poems explore the, the past and present and future of that place. So in a really, I guess, in a natural way, your activism and your writing just go hand in hand and, and feed and inform each other. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, my writing is often um, political and, and sometimes it, it happens in and for protest spaces and, uh, and, it's, and it's interested in kind of socio-political concerns um, so here, the reason for my hesitancy is that um, I'm uh, I'm actually a lot more sceptical than you might think of the um, of the function of arts of the arts in protest movement, and um, I don't I don't <laughs> I don't write poetry because I think it's a really effective form of protest. Um, sorry, uh, <laughs> I, um, I write poetry because I have to. I write poetry because. Um, it helps me be in the world because I, I like making beautiful things and complicated and confusing and strange things. I like I love doing that, and that's that's why I write poetry. But I also have a political existence. I also um, participate, have participated in activist movements, and so I write about that because it's part of my life and and part of my part of my world. Um, and I, I do think the arts have a role in in protest. I'm just. I'm just cautious of talking it up because I think that that sort of things like 
community organising and mm. uh, unions and demonstrations have a, have a much more central role to which the arts can contribute. Yeah. yeah. Um, why don't we hear one of your more political poems from Tonnet then? Um, um, so this is Tia Kunzler, um, and it was specifically addressed to a councillor that was involved in closing Governhill Baths, but more generally it's addressed to every minor functionary, every, every, every small authoritarian uh, in the world. Tia Kunzler. We glaket, skybald, fascist, Bastard. What Uncle Warold marks you were mister? What glamour has your eyes in Festa's projectile bulk? It's time to gee your fichy fuster an honest soak. It's folk like you will I take poor, whoever small to reassure your scrinket soul ye earn poor, like all around ye. And when your puck is quite secure, their wrath astounds ye. See a boo your pus to gods like prophet, the mare arracks the talk and scoff it, the mare amuth the need food toffets a strivers, Scotland. I'm here to learn you new, come off it, your patter's rotten. Ye and all the fight was like ye, schoolyard bankster where man gets psyche, polis running a skinny reich we protect and serve, mid-heed bummer was sneezed a spiky, mere ma job's worth. I'd think that rogues would hae ambition, would aim for a CEO's position, would be PM-type politicians, the mere to plunder. But you're content with shelpit visions and scurvin wonder. I ken that we should hold our laith for doomsters with a worth our breath, but more all your mickle stooth, your muckle gruesome. You'd cut the libris, cut the baths, cut all what's loosome, cut all what fight you come to treasure, your life setoon, your only pleasures, cruisely using rule and measure, a cut what vive you can't understand, what leisure we need to live. I'll talk a spell afore concluding, a say my flight ends no including, the fight and councils no colluding in your fustian rule, wha talk the poor and spread it, Proven they'd join the pool. So can you know, were teens expanding, while Pendwit's ears and no withstanding the wind walls, Leo will loch disbanding your pack and all, and though no first, you will be standing against the war. Should my words seem off a steery, a weird wits out of whack, a theory, our gain, your wrongs were peery, I'll wish instead, you see yourself as others see ye, already deed. You've one chance still to rest your ghost. You're silly, for that's mere than most will get for ye, see mark your cast. I'm yet guy steaming. New counsellor, Resign your post and get to swimming. On a sort of political front, still, mm-hmm. I have to raise this um, because it's to me it's the highest honour. I mean, some people think it might be a CBE or MB. Some people might think it's appearing on Desert Island discs. Um, to me, um, getting attacked by the Daily Mail is really 
Yes, vile. They said I was vile. They said I was a vile cyber gnat. Which was astonishing to me, given that I uh, this. I mean, this was this was at the height of the independence referendum. Um, and I wrote an article about it. I think if you if you Google like Harry Giles Cybernat, you might find it. Um, it was at the height of the independence referendum, which I'd spent the vast majority of my time complaining about nationalism and speaking out against nationalism and calling for an anti-nationalist version of independence. Um, so it was very confusing that I got called a cybernat, but it was because oh, there was um, there was a, a massive campaign, cultural supposedly campaign, um, funded by a, an investment banker of some variety called um, Vote No Borders, um, which enraged me um, because, <laughs> because, the idea, because No Borders is a slogan um, of, a, of an international migrant rights movement that is genuinely campaigning for open borders across the world. And this wasn't a campaign for open borders across the world, this was a campaign to just, uh, to just reinforce the British borders. So, I was really, really annoyed by this appropriation of a really important internationalist anarchist slogan um, by a deeply reactionary campaign. Um, and I wrote some very angry tweets in which um, I said that we should, uh, we should occupy the hashtag Vote No Borders with internationalism um, in order to make this investment banker reflect... Uh, uh, what was it? Regret his decisions and life. <laughs> um, which was a little bit over-talking it. But the Daily Mail, like, quoted this one tweet being like, vile cybernat threatens life of hero banker or whatever. Which is, I wasn't threatening his life. I just wanted him to, I just wanted him to regret his decisions in life. Um, which was clear from the context. Anyway, so that's how I got come to be called a, a vile called Vile by the Daily Mail, so which I've worn as a badge of pride ever your, since. Your publisher must have trek here. You know, we should have this on the front page. <laughs> Vile, the Daily Mail. Vile, the Daily Mail. Because yeah, this yeah, would yeah, increase yeah. sales by at least, yeah. you know, two or three hundred, I think, at yeah. very least. And that, my friends, is it for another episode of the Scottish Porch Libraries podcast series. My name's been Colin Waters, and I'd like to thank you, you the listener, for tuning in over the past 30 minutes. I'd like to thank Harry Giles for coming in and talking to us about his um, poetry. It was great. And thanks also to Will Campbell, who records, produces, plays the theme tune that you hear at the start of the show and you're just about to hear now at the end of the show. If you're interested in the Scottish Poetry Library's podcasts, its blogs, its various bits and bobs, you can go to our website, uh, which uh, you can find at www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk and that'll keep you up to date on everything that we're doing. Uh, if you're a socially media-minded person, we do Twitter. Of course we do Twitter. And our handle is at By Leaves We Live. We do a Facebook as well. Just type in Scottish Poetry Library. I'm sure that'll take you there. And we do Instagram these days. And the Instagram handle is SPL Scotland. And so, as I say, that's it for another edition of the Scottish Poetry Library. Uh, my dear colleague Jennifer will be along in about two weeks' time with uh, another podcast, and then I'll appear in four weeks' time with one of my podcasts. Until then, let's leave you with some more poetry uh, by Harry. Uh, so here he is introducing the final poem that we're going to hear in this podcast. Okay, so this um, last poem um, was commissioned by Stanza, Scotland's uh, International Poetry Festival. 
um, who were doing this really wonderful project called Bridging the Continental Divide. You can find a lot of stuff about that online. Um, which was translating Scottish Latin poetry into the contemporary languages of Scotland. So there was this really fruitful period of Scottish literature that's now kind of sadly a bit forgotten, um, in which loads of writing was happening in Latin. So it was a project to kind of bring life back to that. Um, so me being who I am, they gave me a poem to work with that is about power and uh, authority and ruling. Um, and it's by uh, a poet called um, Thomas Craig from a, an epic poem he wrote um, called Stephanophoria, which is sort of his version of um, The Prince, I mean, Machiavelli's The Prince, or, or The Tao Te Ching. Like it's, it's one of these epic poems that is advice to a ruler. Um, and this poem, um, Uncanny Rulin, is what I've called it, on uh, how to be a smart ruler, is, is about how to, um, rather than using violence, using persuasion to try and control the population, um, which he thought was a good thing and I was a bit more sceptical about. So I wrote a sort of sceptical translation of this. Um, and rather than uh, the, the sort of southern Scots of the other poetry that I've done in this podcast, this is um, solidly a, an Orcadian version of Scots, um, though my accent is still a mess. So, this is On Canny Rulan, after Thomas Craig, for Stephanophoria. I'm heard Amphian ring at Thebes, what only a string at shell, ne cared, ne grave, but doughty rocks played into life, into begging ourselves, into wars. That tortoise shell was I sneller as weapons. Just so, clemency bracks unwilling wills. Be sharp, when the folk are settled, be and rule, wised be the weight o' henny words, they will work for thee at onything thou says, and folly thee onywhere, athoot thou needin' to crack out the whip. Library podcast. For further information about the Scottish Poetry Library, visit our website at www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk, follow us on Twitter at By Leaves We Live, and find us on Facebook.